Today's guest in the Thriving in Construction, the podcast, is Miami, Florida native who was born to immigrant parents. She is Lourdes Martin Rosa, president of Government Business Solutions, GBS. GBS is dedicated to providing excellent services ranging from program management solutions to supporting the government and conventional clients' project performance needs. It is interesting to know that the opportunity for Lourdes to get into the government contracting came about because she was hired by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce as a U.S. commercial rep to launch an initiative to help Hispanic businesses realize their potential in the government contracting. She traveled across the nation to speak on this, sharing the Small Businesses Administration's programs and resources that many businesses were not aware of. Because of her success, She launched Government Business Solutions in 2003, intending to increase awareness and outreach to small businesses on the importance of growing their businesses in the federal sector. Welcome, Lourdes Martin Rosa. Lourdes, thank you for being here today. Welcome to Driving in Construction, the podcast. Can you tell us or allow the listeners to, to, to learn about you, where you're coming from? Tell me about Lourdes Martin Rosa and also uh, Government Business Solutions. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's delightful to be here in your inaugural podcast, and I am so excited and proud of you. We go back so many years, almost 15 years that we have been together. I want to tell you that I started my journey uh, as an immigrant to this country. I came at a very young age, uh, and my parents always had an initial focus of not really uh, obtaining a handout. That was not the focus back in the 60s, so therefore, both of my parents really went into the work field immediately. With my brother and I having to kind of fend for ourselves, and I remember being, you know, eight and nine years old and having a key, and when I got home from school, opening the door and having to go in and having to help my mom cook the rice and always being a team as a family. And as I grew up uh, in inner city schools and was challenged by many, uh, and had many obstacles in my growth in my teenage years, I always thought of challenges as opportunities. So one of the most important aspects that my parents instilled in me is that if you are a good person, good things will always come to you. So regardless of the challenges and the obstacles that we had, I always remember to always be a good person and do good to people and kind of um, pray for those that weren't as good because obviously they had many problems. So moving forward, I always had an entrepreneurship mentality. Even through high school, I was president of many clubs and associations and then got into college and then actually grew myself through there. I got into sales and marketing and uh, started as working for the Miami Herald in advertising. And they trained me on the importance of success and having the um, initial drive and really seeing that you were successful at an early age. What age are you talking about? I'm talking about 21, 22 years old. So back then at 21, what was success? What did the picture of success look like? 
So I remember Night Raider publication sending me off to a training. I was the youngest of about 20 people that were being trained. Many people in the room were of age and they had been working with Night Raider publications, the Miami Herald, Sun Sentinel, all different types of newspapers, and I was the newbie. So I'm here to learn and I thought we were going to all learn about selling, you know, classified advertising, selling you're talking about the world of no computers right now. So it was, it was very different, <laughs> probably about 1986, more or less. And I will tell you that the instructor made such an impact in my life because the instructor in the training was not really um, training us about sales, but more the power of persuasion. And the power of persuasion basically comes and stems from your leadership, your value, and your character. So if you portray yourself in a leadership role with value in everything that you do, and you maintain a solid, strong character, you pretty much will be successful at almost everything that you do. So to this day, I still instill that. And when I started my own firm, uh, Government Business Solutions in 2003, I started with those same three characteristics. So leadership, value, value and character. character. Now, and, and that's thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. and, and putting that into perspective because those three learnings, teachings, they actually, you took them to your business. Yeah. What, uh, 20 years later yes. or so. So, But back then when you were 21, because I'm hoping some of younger generation is, is listening to us, when he, he said that leadership, Character and value. How did he explain that? What What did that mean? How did he? You just the word in itself doesn't mean much without a background. So what did that mean when you heard that? What What? How did you translate these three words? What's funny is that the training that we obtained didn't really teach us about more about sales, more about like I said, power of persuasion. So he went around with hat and different things that we had to take out of that hat. So it could be a topic of pen, it could be eraser, it could be notebook, it could be anything, it could be chair. We basically had one minute and we were being videotaped and then we were going to pull back the video. So here I am at an even keel with all the experienced folks in the room. Although they had more salesmanship, they didn't really know how to sell red or they didn't know how to sell eraser. So my word was eraser. So I started thinking of all of the characteristics of an eraser. I mean, what could be the best thing that you could have to erase mistakes that you make? So I kind of did my presentation towards that. And everyone applauded me in the room. And even though I was the youngest one, it gave me the sense of comfortness that I could go out and fulfill my journey in advertising that I was doing. So, but when you did this presentation, because everything is about, you know, you had success in mind, you wanted to be applauded and you wanted to be, to nail it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I want to kill it. What was your outcome? That my word is eraser and I have to come up with everything that has to do with eraser. What was the outcome that you had? How did you come up with this idea to correlate erasers in other areas of life? So when we, everyone is a salesperson and I always think, I always talk to business owners and business owners say, oh, I'm not a salesperson. I have a salesperson. No, you are always selling your business. 
So the way that I portrayed the eraser at the time was a problem solver. And the eraser was going to help solve problems that no one else could do. And I was empowered with this eraser word. So I kind of took that mentality. And then I also got to envision a great speaker called Zig Ziglar. And Zig Ziglar always used to say, don't become salespeople, become farmers. Because farmers seed and grow. So therefore, always become problem solvers. In everything that you do, even construction, if someone is coming to you because they want to construct a building, they want to construct their house, you are going to be the person that is going to solve their problem and give them the comfort that they need to be able to feel that they could put not only finances into this, but that you have the capabilities to fulfill the requirements. And that is the way that the character that I have built for myself as a problem solver. In my opportunities as a public speaker, I always talk to business owners and say, you know, what um, value proposition are you bringing to the table? And if you can't answer that question, then you need to go back and reevaluate your business and then go into a presentation as I'm presenting a value and this is what I am doing for this client to be able to get them from point A to point B and be better. Of course. So value proposition, what problem are you solving? What's the problem that you as a company are solving, right? Obviously, many people, as you said, don't know this, Mm -hmm. the answer to these questions when they started the business. They don't really understand. They just want to be an entrepreneur, but they haven't really thought deeply as to what is the problem that I'm solving for the client. And in your case, fast forward now, from that eraser experience uh, so beautifully expressed, you start, you decide to go into business for yourself. What was the problem that you saw and that you said, you know what, I can solve that problem for the client? Well, in many cases, and I had the opportunity to work in different industries. I worked in the travel industry. I worked in advertising and marketing but always in sales. And I also worked as an architectural representative for a large tile company. In every aspect, I always said, let's go back to our previous client, reevaluate the service that we did. And always you could either get, if they don't need any more of your service or product, you could always get a referral from that client. And many of the companies that I worked for didn't see that as an added value. They just saw as go get new business, go get new business. And that's one of the things that propelled me to also become an entrepreneur because I felt that I could do it better. To create that client base that when you create that client base, now it's like becoming the farmer. You're planting the seeds and you're watching it grow. So the client base Well, now, not only that if they need your product or service, but they're also referring you. And if you come back to them and you, you know, even if it's a Christmas card, even if it's to say hello or how are you doing or to get together for lunch or whatever it may be, even just a phone call, it's just that they show that you care because people want to buy from people that they trust and people that they know that show a little bit of gratitude. That Because they always say no one wants to be sold. So if you're a salesperson, you're just going there and you're just 
selling a product and goodbye and going to the next one and selling a product and goodbye. And I remember Zig Ziglar used to always say that you have to become a farmer and you have to plant the seeds and then you have to grow. And I believe that then the branches of the tree, once it's planted, is become is what helps you grow as a business owner. Because as a business owner, I don't advertise at all. But luckily, um, and thank God I've been very successful by word of mouth. And I think that by word of mouth is the branches that are stemming from the seeds that we plant as we begin to grow. So as an entrepreneur, I think that many of us need to establish resources and relationships that are going to help us become successful farmers as business owners. So I, I love this, you know, you've had Six Sigler obviously as a mentor for mm-hmm. forever. He's been a, a good influencer in your life, right? Right. Um, but I'm still not clear as to what's the problem I know you said that you could do it better. I can um, serve the client better. I can help them. With my help, we can farm and and, and grow more. But what is the problem that you said, my business, my competitive advantage is this, and this is exactly how did you articulate that when you were at the beginning of of your journey in your business, how did you articulate it? This is the problem I solved. How would you say that? I would say that as women, we have an advantage because we're nurturers by nature. So therefore, whenever we have a client, I view it as a problem that I'm trying to solve and I'm trying to nurture that client. So I view the requirements of my client, I view the needs of my client. And then when I always sit down with them, I say, in a perfect world, what would you like to see? What would you like to see the outcome of this project that we're going to do together? So always envision yourself as you're going into it already, now that you're going to be selected or not. They will usually tell you, what's the objective? What do you want to get out of this? So I would put that objective into the solution that I'm going to provide to the client. So are you were you someone that basically worked in multiple industries and multiple, what was your expertise then? So in my, my expertise has always been sales and marketing. So government business solutions say, does sales and marketing for clients? Is that for, what you did? I did in the beginning. I did sales and marketing and also helped prepare the foundation for businesses to be able to propel their business and government contracts. So it was nice of me to see and the fruits of my labor because businesses would come back to me after a year of training um, that they would hire my services and say, thank you so much with what I learned. I was able to land a $10 million contract or a $2 million contract or $300,000. And then I would always say, remember what you're going to do with that client. You're going to continue to find that client and you're going to have that client then refer you other business or see where you could grow within that agency, or see where you could grow within that large corporation. And that actually helped me become successful because when my daughters graduated from high school, both off into college, I said, okay, now it is my turn to obtain a certification that I would be able to grow in the government sector myself and basically hop in with all hands and feet and do this at 150%. Because as you know, as a government contractor, you literally don't eat or sleep <laughs> from the beginning to be able to grow your business. So you had clients that you helped grow their business, right? Millions of dollars. But you didn't do that with the federal government, right? You, you're not going to help the federal government grow their business. So what was the, your contribution and the problem that you solved 
for federal agencies. So with agencies, a lot of people don't know that the federal government, they don't make, manufacture, or service anything. All they print is money. So um, we know a lot about which that Which is now. nice about the money. <laughs> but every agency needs um, businesses in order to function. In other words, we used to have a going kind of um, funny thing that said, Every person that you saw in, in a government agency wearing a suit with professional attire was a contractor. Everyone that you saw pretty much wearing a polo and nice comfortable pants and khakis was a federal worker. <laughs> so, and, and that's actually the way that it is. Many of the, there's over $600 billion that the federal government spends. It's the largest uh, procurer of contracts in the world. And 23% of that must go to small business. So keeping that in mind, I said, hmm, they must go to small business. It's a mandate, a congressional mandate. So therefore, I'm going to help government agencies meet that goal, but also I'm going to teach small businesses how to prepare the foundation for their for their company to have a leadership role in helping the agencies fulfill the requirements. Because when you're helping an agency, even if it's just staffing, let's say something is simple, which is not very simple, but just staffing, those staffers are basically performing a mission for that agency. Just as, for example, in construction, you know, if you are building a um, immigration custom enforcement office, you are fulfilling something that is going to have a mission for the public. And there's a form of gratitude in that when you're done with, with this work. As to say, you know, Congress is speaking about something and is appropriating more money into a topic that you have just opened up for them to realize that we have a shortage. So it's kind of making that difference. And what I loved in making the difference that you and I did back in 2008, 2009, which is when we were fighting for equal rights for women business contractors. Women did not have a seat at the table. We did not have a women's procurement program. And it took about three or four years of really speaking around the country and empowering other women to realize that they have a growth opportunity with the federal government because 5% is set aside small businesses. For women. $600 billion. And that 5% that was set aside for small business, but there wasn't a set-aside program. So luckily, it was President Obama that actually enforced the program. And in um, February of 2011, it was put into law. And it wasn't until May or June until they awarded the first ever woman set-aside contract. But I have to say that we had a small integral part in that, in trying to empower other women throughout the United States. Right. Because I think it was it was very good because we all couldn't have done it by ourselves. Right. And, and there's obviously a lot of great women that have uh, contributed to this process. And the women that have um, gone out there and started their companies and, and proven that they can... You know, they can lead a company and they can get the job done as a woman business and they are not a front, uh, but they are actually doing the work. They is the proof that was needed. So the Congress would hear, listen, uh, we need to set aside some work for women because a lot of times they're left behind and, uh, and not allowed. You're competing. You're not really competing, competing at the same level. Mm -hmm. Right, and it happens a lot in construction still today. Exactly, and we we are at a disadvantage when it comes to almost in every field 
when it comes to government contracting. Because in government contracting, many folks feel that, oh, it's a male-dominated sector, which it still is. But thank God just two years ago, we met the woman on the goal, you know, of 5%. So it's taken many, many years for us to pave the way for other women entrepreneurs to step up and say, you know, these women worked really hard and other um, organizations worked really hard to be able to open up that path for us. Let's go ahead and become entrepreneurs. Let's go ahead and, you know, get a seat at the table. Let's go ahead and do this and demonstrate the leadership and the value that these other women did for us to be able to go in. Because I will tell you, I don't want a lot of competition ladies, but... 5% of $600 billion is a lot of money. Oh, yeah. We, we, we only need a few, some million. Exactly. Right? <laughs> now, let me ask you something because you're talking about a very controversial, in my opinion, topic. And I don't know, you know, this is going to be, maybe they're going to cut it, cut it. Mm -hmm. But when I started the company, back then, you know, we had the recession and the government decided to you know, ignite the economy and focus on small businesses because it's true, small businesses, I, I felt that, you know, that small businesses empower the economy. In my experience, we, in 2010, we, all of a sudden, all this marketing effort that we had done paid off and I had to hire 26 people in one month because all the work happened at the same time. You know, I, I had ton of ton of work that, but all the multiple effort, it's just like everything happens at, at one. And it, that was great. You know, all the money that we was flowing through us, we were hiring people. We had to, we couldn't do it alone. But one day I, I received a phone call around the same time about a contract that was going to be awarded to a large company. And they needed uh, a women uh, to fulfill the women, the percentage of women uh, goal, right? The, the rule of two. Yeah, At least well, two or more women-owned businesses. Well, no, actually, this large company needed to award 5% to a woman. Okay. That was in their contract. Oh, as a subcontract. Right, as a subcontractor. So they called me, and this guy that I knew uh, from another company, he says, listen, I, uh, we need to award to a woman. What, guy, what, what do you want? I'm like, how, how much would it be? And I was very naive, and I said... Well, give me, I don't know, send me the contract, send me the contract, send me the drawings, send me the specs so that I, we can properly go through the process and price the job. You know, this, this was a, a big job. They wanted us to be in charge of a, of a, the drywall, right? Interior finishes. And the guy says, no, we just want to know how, how much do you want? I'm like, what? Like, what do you mean? And so he's like, yeah, what percentage do you want? I'm like, I don't do that. You know, you talked about gratitude, right? I felt so grateful because the government in this, I'm an immigrant also, right. as you can, I don't, I don't have an accent, <laughs> but you know, um, I felt so grateful the country gave me an opportunity, right? And I cannot turn back and say, to me, that's prostitution. Of I, don't, I don't know another exactly. word. It's prostitution. You're, you're, you're defeating the purpose of the system. And if I sell or if I just, in the idea of the certifications or setting aside work for a woman or for, you know, any, any entity, right, that, that the service disabled, um, if the idea of zone is not to, for you to give me a percentage, I'm going to stay home and just give me some money. That's nice. not the point. The point here is 
for you to grow your company. And to perform the work. And to perform the work. So through that process, you're going to grow your company, hire more people, and so on and so forth. And so what do you think about that? Have we improved on that? Because I've had some challenges myself in competing with a, a large company that is a male-dominated company that associated themselves with a woman, and then she's not doing anything, but they got the job. And, you know, how do you think we can fade away from that? What do we need to tell women that are they, they are capable, but maybe they don't think they are? What do you need to tell women that instead of doing something like that, what do we need to tell them? How do we inspire them? How do we empower them? One of the most important things that as women business owners that we need to do is that we need to understand that we are not masters of everything. But what we are masters of is running an organization and having the leadership skills needed to be able to run a team. So in present, I was presented with a challenge where I basically had my first $2.5 million, large million dollar contract with the federal government. And um, I was an 8A certified firm, which means you're a small disadvantaged business. And I received an 8A sole source award. Actually, didn't receive. I earned it because I fought really hard to obtain that contract. I knew that I had the capabilities. I knew that I could perform. It was for project management, mission support, and human capital. That is nothing of what I know as a person. So I knew that I could build a team, and I had already spoken with so many people, that I would interject into my company, and I know that I could help them also have the same vision that I had and have a growth opportunity. So I did go after it, and then I would basically hire these folks. Now, me being a control freak that I am, I grabbed my daughter's textbook from college and started studying a little bit about human capital just to understand it. But then I felt confident enough in the people that I had hired that had the full potential to be able to meet the contract. We not only received over $6 million in doing that contract because we got it for five more years, but we also received an award of achievement at the end of the work. And not only that, but we strengthened the agency. We helped the agency fulfill its human capital mission support requirements, which allows their employees to now work better as people on the agency's mission, which really helps America. Right. Because we need Department of Homeland Security right. is basically there to help secure the homeland. And if we could help the employees do their job better, then guess what? It's going to make America a better place. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I, that I really loved about doing federal work, and I, and I do. It's when I, the first time I went to, a, the first time I entered a base, uh, an Army Corps, uh, actually it was in Cape Canaveral. The first time I went to act to do work, because we had already uh, obtained a contract, and actually, no, I take it back. We were marketing that agency, and uh, we go there for a presentation, and I and I think this is the power of claiming things, right? I, I remember telling my partner, I said, wow, it'd be amazing to work here. You, I, I am not in the military. We're grateful for what they do, but they would, this would be my way to contribute. Mm -hmm. My way because they need facilities and we, that's what we know how to do, right, in construction. And I, you don't know this, but we got did the presentation left and two hours later, as we were driving back to Miami, they called and they said, you got the contract. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's what happened. But you're right. There's an amazing feeling uh, in supporting the mission that a, a client has. And, yes. and that can happen in all areas. And, you know, we lose sight as government contractors and you go and you see all of these contracts that are coming out, and whether they be $10,000 to $10 million, all of them are forming a function for the agency, whether it be the smallest to the largest. And we lose sight of that. We lose sight of the fact that we are helping this agency fulfill its mission and its requirements. But not only that, is that we also have to understand that we, as business owners, have to adapt to change. There is not a bigger change than what all businesses have encountered in 2020. And adapting to change just doesn't mean just coronavirus, but it also means when your contract is ended, when you've lost that contract due to budgeting, or when you have a $5 million client and all of a sudden the budget is pulled. Or an employee. Or an employee that all of a sudden is taken to a large corporation or that's pretty much stolen from you. So, you know, really? that doesn't happen. <laughs> no, of course not. But then they realize that that employee wasn't really performing all of the work. It was the team effort of the corporation that actually made it successful, not the one person. But it is a challenging time. And I remember, again, Sig Ziglar said one thing that says, it's not the strongest that succeed, but it's the ones that are adaptable. So we all have to learn to adapt to change. Because if there's one thing that we could count on is change. And it is the way that we adapt to it. So when I lost my $5 million contract, I basically went in, sat with all the employees and said, okay, this is happening. You all have families. You all have mortgages to pay, car payments to pay, student loans to pay. I have, again, as a woman business owner in that nurturing mentality, I have an obligation to keep you all here. I do not want to let you all go. I had to adjust some hours, but did not. They all kept all of their benefits, health benefits, and they all just adjusted hours until we were able to adapt to the change and obtain another client to be able to fulfill another client that we lost. And that is important because as a business owner, you are the driving um, force of the company. Anyone could easily go ahead, you know, get a salary and obtain that salary. And each time as a business owner, I would be watching people speak. And I would say, any politician? And I would say, yes, you could say that very easily because you have a nice hefty congressional salary. <laughs> I'm here trying to build the foundation of a business, an entrepreneur. I need to get something in order to obtain this. But as I said, when you start to portray yourself as a leader and you build your character and value and everything that you present. In every single contract that we have done, we always would do a presentation at the end of the contract and we would show, especially a government agency, the value of the taxpayer dollar. Because at the end of the day, we are all paying for this. So we had to say this was the value that was brought back to the agency and how well the agency is going to be functioning as a result of it. In your case, it's in construction. Your value that you're presenting to that agency is the military base and the facilities of our heroes that are now going to be sleeping in a more comfortable facility that is going to be much better for them. So everything that we do in life, and we use because I would say 80% of my business is in government contracting, it is a fulfillment. And I think that that is the way that I've always portrayed my business. So what, folks, what is 
fulfillment for you? I think fulfillment for me is basically knowing that I am solving a problem for either my clients or also when I do consulting, that that small business is grasping and learning and moving forward in the learnings that I'm doing and the trainings that I'm doing. And knowing that someone else is excelling as a result of my work or my team's work is extremely important. Um, one of the nicest things that I did as a former American Express um, advisor in government contracting was when I was speaking across the nation, I would bump into women from Chicago, from Utah, from North Carolina, everywhere, and they would say, I heard you speak and I never could get it because the government would explain it not in layman's terms. In other words, in government terms, the way that they were trained to explain it. But when you're a, you know, a mover and a shaker and actually a talker and a doer, because not only was I doing business with the federal government, but I was also helping women understand that if I could do it and they I'm an immigrant to this country, just the same way you are, you could do it too. And you could grow in government contracting. Absolutely. And, and let me ask you, say, how can someone grow in government contracting? Well, the important thing is, is that government contracting is not for everyone. What are the three things people need to consider to grow in government contracting? Number one thing that they need to consider is that can't be their only field of revenue. Because as a business owner, the life cycle of when you start doing business with the federal government for the first time and you land that first government contract is about 18 months. So you obviously will need a client in order to help pay for all the expenses before that. So what I did was I did a lot of trainings to small businesses and also had some large corporations that asked me to train their sales reps into going into the field of government contracting and um, also had the opportunity to be a speaker for American Express and very long and help them launch this government contracting program. So that was my side thing while I was basically growing my business in the federal sector. But you have to understand that the federal government is a phenomenal client because they pay every 15 days. But it is a client that requires a lot of um, reports, a lot of background and of background checks. And it is a client that you will be able to grow in, but you only have that one chance to make it wrong, to make it well or make it wrong. If you fail, which we all have failed, as a government contractor, it is very difficult to overcome that. And but it can be done. It can be done. It can be done. And there are so many agencies, Jesus, there's over 63,000 agencies and sub-agencies in the entire nation. So before you go there, because everything you're saying is so valuable for a lot of people, uh, before you go there, I, I'd like people to really understand three things they want to consider before going into, uh, a, you know, to growing in the government contracting. You said, um, and this is beautiful, you talked about eight, 18-month sales cycle, so they have to have another source of revenue. Right. So the next second thing that you would think. The second thing is don't do what I did. I did the shotgun approach to kill a mosquito. I said, okay, I'm an expert salesperson and marketer. I am basically just going to market myself to every single agency and I'm going to sit back and I am going to watch it grow. Well, that didn't work. I basically got crickets after sending thousands of emails. 
Nothing. So you have to target your audience. Um, for example, I like to target agencies that I know aren't going to have their budgets cut. Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security. No congressional leader likes to cut the Homeland Security's budget. So these are agencies that you know and that also know how to work with small business. Every agency has a small business office. And I would say the third thing is also understanding who you need to meet with at that agency. Because every agency has a small business specialist or a small business office at every level. So from the, the top level in DC down to the federal agency that's locally in your office, in your, in your state. And understanding that those are the gatekeepers. Those are the ones that are going to help you understand if maybe this agency is the one you want to go to. For example, we were talking earlier about the infrastructure bill, how it was just passed and it's in the billions of dollars, where you have an agency like Department of Transportation that is probably going to be a good place for you to channel a lot of your work. Department of Homeland construction, Security yeah. and construction. Horizontal construction. Right. right. Yeah. So it's... Knowing where to go. Um, also, a lot of people don't know this, but usually around the months of between October and December, depending on the year, uh, Congress puts out the budget. And it's not something you want to read because it's 3,000 pages. But you put out the, you download this budget and you know how we all do command F for find. And you basically try and find your field, construction. Find out everywhere that more money has been appropriated to an agency in construction, or whether if it's IT services, or if it's human capital services, or whatever it may be, advertising and marketing. Try to do command F and try find everywhere that goes. Now, that may be a nice job not for you to do, but maybe for an intern or somebody that's an assistant in your office suit is going to be very time consuming, but at least they could channel and create that target as to those top three agencies that are going to be appropriated the most money to fulfill that requirement. Because remember, even if it's a $3 billion project, let's say, like infrastructure maybe, they still have 23% that must go to small business. Right. So if you are there in the forefront and you know, you've built a solid foundation as a trusted small business, they're going to want to do business with you. Of course. And what would you say, what's your experience with women in construction? Um, I know you know several successful women in this industry, and I know you've helped some of them, like me, navigating the, in the government, government world. I, I mean, you and I have had a lot of fun doing this. I, I, it's nice to go back in life and remember you know, how you you were 15, 20 years ago trying to get something done and you saw it, it you thought it was so impossible. How am I going to do this? And and we're here today. But how, you've seen women in construction. What would you say? First, I want to know, do you think this is a hard industry for women? The second thing I want to know is, do you think we need more women in this industry? We definitely do. And women in construction need to reach out to the resources that they have, the resources that you're building, the resources that have already been established for women in construction. And as women, we need to work together to strengthen, because there's strength in numbers, as always there is. So as women, I mean, the strength in numbers is what helped the Women's Procurement Program be born and to strengthen the program throughout the years. And 
Establish the resources and establish relationships within each other. We don't know how to work well with each other as our male counterparts do. My husband being a retired firefighter, I always say there are 16 men in a fire station and they all work well together. Well, you put two women in a fire station and they'll be killing each other. So it's, we need to work together and learn how to build on each other's resources. For example, you may have the expertise in horizontal construction, civil engineering, but then another construction firm is an expert in vertical construction and mechanical engineering. We'll learn to work together because a design-build contract has all of those components. And by teaming and working together, you fulfill the requirement of the agency and you get to win that work and start building performance for you. I think that we need to work more together and we need to also come together by utilizing resources. So what do you think about women in construction, the ones you know that have been successful? What has has made them successful? Not being scared to speak up because when you're in a room, and of course there's 90 men in a room, and there's one or two women that are in construction, they tend to not ask questions and just basically listen to the questions that are asked around them. Excuse me, here I'm referring to, let's say, the site visit. And you know that when in construction, you're going to go see a site and they're going to show you, oh, this is what we're going to do. Many of the women do not speak up. Whereas women may have more knowledge because we have to work harder, we have to be brighter, and we have to be better prepared for the meeting than our male counterpart. Because our male counterpart is pretty uh, comfortable that they are going to receive that contract. So, but why is that? If you are more prepared and you're qualified... Why wouldn't you speak up? Why why would that why would that happen? Why I think lack of confidence. What yeah. is confidence? I think women need to feel more comfortable and gain the confidence that they need because um I remember I was once at a site visit and this was at Fort Lauderdale Airport and I was just there as a consultant for the construction firm that I was there with and she basically understood the agency, knew the purpose of the agency, the mission, the goals, and everything. But the program managers that were there were just, we're just going to do this. Whereas she spoke up and basically said, if I provide a sustainable product that is going to help the environment and that is going to also be conducive to the air quality, wouldn't that be a better opportunity? And it also is going to save taxpayer dollars. Well, she spoke up and she got the contract because she had the confidence to change the norm. It's not just putting up drywall. It was doing something different. That's very well said. Very, very well said. Now, she's a rare breed, right? This, this woman is a rare breed. What do you think allowed her to have the confidence to speak up? Because you just said women don't speak up, you know, when they have to. Sometimes. Well, one of the things that I had... Um, what is the ingredient that this woman has, has in, in her? That she, 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 she speaks her mind. She, when she knows, she has the confidence. What makes this woman confident? I think what made her confident is that she did her homework. Mm-hmm. That she understood the agency. But not only that, is at the time the president had spoken and had put out an executive order to all government agencies that they were to view a sustainable product over any other product and that they would choose that sustainable product if given the opportunity to do over any other product that is not going to be good for the environment. 
So she, she was the only one that knew that information. So you talk about knowledge and you talk about working with Congress and trying to understand the things that they're um, putting out and the news that they're putting out. That is the advantage that she had. And everyone else basically looked at her and said, well, I don't know. Um, the other male construction firms said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then she basically looked at me and I said, well, Maybe you should look at Executive Order 13804, which was just put out, that they need to purchase all sustainable products. And that was a mandate by Congress. That's the whole, the reward of being, of preparation, you know. And I, I, I say it again and again, it's not good luck. Mm-hmm. It's not that she was lucky, but she was prepared when the opportunity was presented. Exactly. And a lot of times we don't give value to preparation and studying and growing and learning. I think we have to constantly be studying and growing and learning. Always, constantly. Because we're, we're living in a changing world right now, especially with what the world has been through in 2020. We all have had to adapt to a different way of living. And those that have the problem with adapting are basically not going to succeed. So when I say that you're the stronger are not going to be the most successful, it's going to be the people that are able to adapt to change easier are going, and quicker are going to be the ones that are going to be successful. So going back to confidence, because I really believe confidence is something that we all struggle with. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is something that is only a, a belongs to an industry because you're in a male-dominated industry, you don't have so much confidence. I believe confidence affects us in different areas of our lives differently and different you know, depending on backgrounds and some people are not confident about the way they look or, you know, it, it, I've had times that I haven't been that confident because, uh, I don't know, maybe my accent, you mm-hmm. know, when I came here to this country or what else would you say this woman that speak, spoke up and got the contract besides preparation, what else, did she, you know her well, what else do you think, and there's no right or wrong question, right. answer here, what else do you think she had in her? that allow her to, you know, be confident and speak up. I think also um, creating the right teamwork within your company that she had recently worked with a firm that provided sustainability to the federal government. And they knew that this was a mandate that was fairly new. And she knew that she could move forward with this. But her confidence, I think, stems from the fact that she wasn't afraid. We all fail. As they say, how many times does LeBron James basically make a basketball? There's more failures than there are times that he lands and puts the basketball in in the same thing with Michael Jordan. So we all have the fear of thinking that we're going to ask either the wrong question or that we're going to fail. And I think that building that confidence in you is to say, don't be afraid to ask the question. Don't be afraid. And don't be afraid to then follow up. Also, she was among one of the few companies that were there that did the follow-up. A lot of people say, oh, I'm going to follow up with an email right after. That's perfect. Oh, probably about 90% of the people are going to do that. What are you going to do next week? 10% of the people follow up. Follow up. That's true. And people don't understand that, oh, I sent one email. Well, how many emails a day do you get? I get about 3,000 emails a day. You know, I'm sure you must get more. And by the end of the day, you're finally going through all the ones that matter and don't matter and so forth. And how many times are you going to have to reach out to that person? How many times does somebody need to reach out to get a, a yes, let's say? 
You're in sales. The average is if you reach out 10 times, if you get one yes, you're doing good. So, and a lot of people don't understand that as business owners, 99% of the businesses in America are small. But here's another one that a lot of people don't know. 89% of the businesses in America have six employees or less. 89 89%. 89%. So if you have more than six employees, then you're doing very, very good. And if even if you have one employee, two employees, then you're on your way to a path of success. Because 89% of the businesses in America have six employees or less. So you talked about success and failure. Why do you think about... 36% of businesses in construction, small businesses, fail at 10, 10 years. What, why do you think that? Because uh, a, a large percentage of businesses disappear in three years. I think it's about 70%. Then, then from those, there's the 50% that, that remain, and then very little percentage of businesses stay in business after 10 years. What, why do you think that is true? And it's true in construction, more is in construction, but it's very general in small businesses. Why? Why? Well, I'm not an expert in construction, but I have seen many firms in construction succeed and many fail in construction. And the ones that I could tell you that have failed did not have the mentality of helping their clients um, solve that problem. They more had the mentality of landing the sale, of making the money. When you focus on the money, a lot of the times you lose the aspect of solving the problem. Well, yes, we're all in business to make money and you have to make a profit in order to succeed and move forward. But that shouldn't be the driving factor. Um, I can't tell you how many times in the beginning for the federal government that I did jobs just on a credit card purchase, which was a limit of $5,000. Whether it would be anything from creating a web page, a little, you know, web page or, or anything that is a Twitter page or whatever it may be, you know, here's this, here's this. And then I would build on that and keep building on it and keep growing it. Even my contract with American Express, while I was a speaker for them, I knew that they were paying an astronomical amount to a large corporation to basically run the events portion when they started to um, go across America on their open for government contracting program. I went in and then demonstrated to a totally different department how my firm as an event planning firm could basically do this work and perform it well. And not only that, but for a fraction of what they were paying the large corporation. And after all, it is a small business program. It should be in the hands of a small business. So I kind of threw that little caveat at the end. And they gave me an opportunity, but it was in Boston, Massachusetts, which I knew nothing about Boston, Massachusetts, but I did my homework. And as soon as I knew that I was going to, that was going to be my first event that I was going to launch with this large corporation, you bet that I was going to check to, with the Chamber of Commerce, that I was going to talk to the SBA, that I was going to reach out to every single resource and guide and really educate myself on Boston's small business community to get as many people out there that I could. Now with this first event that I did for them, all they wanted was just a hundred people there. But I said to them, let's check for 200 because I'm, I'm Lourdes and I'm going to throw this out of the water. But we had 320 people show up. They had to get tables and chairs and thanks God that the capacity held it. Um, but it started a new way for me with a corporation that had viewed me just as a public speaker and an expert in government contracting. Now I'm working with a different division and growing an event planning company with them. Um, so I, you have to always look at different pictures and 
different arteries when you're working within a, a corporation and providing service. Lourdes, I have learned so much. I've been learning. I've been taking notes like crazy. I, I can't believe I, I've known you for so long and I, I still learn from you. So I thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with you. No, thank you for having me. So and, many I, and I learned so many things from you too. And I'm so excited for your success and your company's success. I'm really happy for you guys. Thank you. You've always been a champ. Yeah. I mean, I've always seen how you, you cheer me. You've cheered me all the time. And you cheer the, the, the companies you work with. So uh, it, it really speaks to, the, to your heart. Thank you. And to how you nurture and how you really want to see your, your, your clients succeed. You really are an example of that. Thank so you. I, I thank you for that. Coronavirus. Uh, you were talking about... Topic that we don't want to talk about. <laughs> you were saying how do we need to be adaptable to change. Tell me about you in the coronavirus environment, COVID-19. You know, when it started that we didn't know what was going on. What happened with you? How did it transform you? What did you learn? And um, how did you apply this belief that we have to be adaptable to change? How did this belief that Six Ziegler taught you 30 years ago, you were able to apply this and I, be successful? I will tell you that, let's talk about a couple of months leading up to coronavirus. We were, um, growing as usual, um, you know, I have a full-blown office in South Miami and uh, everyone, of course, is working full-time. And we had three government agency contracts and leading up to my great client that I had been trying to, you know, plant the seed and grow this client for about a year and a half. And we all know the client, it was Amazon. Very excited. In December, I get landed this opportunity to do this event for Amazon and in a similar capacity to American Express, but Amazon wanted to basically step up and provide small businesses with an opportunity to learn how to become small business vendors as Amazon, um, you know, clients on their website. I championed the uh, relationship with the city of Miami and the city of Miami actually hired me using Amazon funds and the city of Miami funds. And this was back in um, about November of, of 2019. Mm -hmm. So I am full gung-ho, really excited. Come back, let my team know we just landed a contract with Amazon. This is going to be the first of many because viewing the success of growing with such a huge company, I basically viewed this. So we had very few months. We had basically just three months to put on an event with about 500 attendees, not even knowing where the venue was. And I was working with a fantastic group at the procurement program with uh, City of Miami. Sat down with them, developed a project plan as I've done before with other agencies and said, this is how we're going to tackle this and this is how this is going to be successful based on the objectives again of my client and what they want to see in a perfect event. Sat down with them and then we selected the venue, moved forward. Here we are, launched the registration site based because I had so many connections and had built so many relationships and built so many resources in the past. As I say to people, these are the strongest things that you could have in your foundation of growth. I immediately was able to get about 260 people registered within 30 days. All they wanted was just 200 people. Here we are going into February 27th, which was the date of the event. 
uh, at Parachungo Islands, which holds a capacity of about 500 people. We were up to about 320 registrants. We were all gone home. We were ready to go. And then all of a sudden, you know, the city starts cracking down because of coronavirus. We were all worried also. The first thing that I did when I started hearing how serious coronavirus was getting was really to reinforce the safety of my team. That was the most important. I wanted to make sure that my team was safe, that we were doing all of the CDC recommended guidelines to make sure that my team would maintain safe and so that their families would be safe as well. So having that already done, I knew that we could conquer the next thing. And here we go in um, early February, Amazon and City of Miami cancel the event. The event. I can't tell you as a small business, I had so much energy and funding that had gone into this event. Luckily, the city of Miami said, let us know how much you have spent. We are going to pay you and then pay me a little bit more for the trouble of the cancellation. But what happens to my other three federal contracts that I had that where we were doing events, where we were doing meeting planning and training and everything else. These are all live events. And, and one of them was classified. So basically you can't take it virtual. I now and experience with something that is unimaginable like everyone else did. What do you do? I basically sat back and talked to my team and talked to even my husband, which has nothing to do with business, but does know a lot about emergency management as being a firefighter paramedic. And I said, what can we do? What can we do here? Um, immediately went to the Small Business Administration and said, as a woman-owned small business in the government sector, what can we do? And one of the agencies said, continue billing us and we are going to have a salvation to this. We're going to have a solve, but give us a month or two. Well, you could imagine I felt extremely guilty of billing an agency and not performing any work. So when they finally realized we're going to take this virtual, we're going to host more webinars than events that we've held, held before, and we want you to champion this for us. I immediately stepped up to the plate and said, yes, um, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I started studying what other virtual platforms had done and those that were successful and incorporating those best practices into something that I could do now to a customer and to my two customers that were basically allowing me to stay open because... I just lost one of my largest contracts, which was with Amazon and City of Miami, and now moving forward into these three agencies. And luckily, I didn't lose any work at all. We were able to switch everything into a um, webinar capacity, even the classified one. We found a format where we could continue providing this training to um, continue doing it virtually. Now, here we go into a whole different virtual environment. I you know, because of my young age, I did not grow with computers. So now talking into a computer every single day makes it difficult. Whereas millennials have grown with computers on the internet, which they are used to that environment. And in my age, I rather have the face-to-face -face communication rather than have the virtual communication. So it was a hard to adapt for me. Basically turned to my crew, turned to my daughters that um, have performed virtual training and through college and through everything else and said, how can we do this? I was more nervous on my first webinar than I was on anything else that I've done with a thousand attendees, you know, an, of an event. So it was a huge way of kind of a slap in the face, 
change, adapt, and pivot or fail. And you basically had to do that. So we pivoted the business to be more of a virtual business. Well, here today, we basically, when I did, as I have done all the time for every one of my agencies, I create a value proposition at the end, show the value that they, we presented and the funding that they gave us and that we presented a, a problem to and, and met their objectives. We actually tripled the goal of the contract on two of the contracts. So it was phenomenal that now they not only want to have a live event, but they want to have a hybrid of both. They want to have a virtual event and they also want to have a hybrid event. So coronavirus, I will tell you, has definitely taught the world that we are very vulnerable. Um, we are fragile and we need to cherish the opportunities that we all have. Be grateful and thankful, which I am every day. But not only that, but learn how to pivot and adapt and change. Because if you don't do that, you're just going to make me just crumble and, and fail. But I will tell you that we live in a wonderful country. And had it not been for many of the other firms that didn't have the capabilities that I had to be able to adapt is that they got received funding, you know, small business loans, whether they be, uh, you know, the PPP loans or whether they be EIDL loans, they receive loans from the SBA to be able to stay open because restaurants, unfortunately, and everyone in the hospitality industry was hit in a way that we can't even imagine because you can't really, you know, yeah. perform that work. So they basically shut down. Yeah. So, I mean, this is so I'm glad to see the country basically stepped up and, um, and really protected them. So that's very good. And I believe um, our listeners are receiving a lot of value. I have, I definitely have learned that. So much more every time you speak, I learn something. Three things you have done, or or in your experience with construction companies, obviously this is a thriving in construction, the podcast. In your experience in helping small businesses or, or construction companies grow and land contracts, what are three things that you recommend they do so that they thrive? In from that experience, what you've learned. What are three things construction companies or people in construction can do to thrive? One of the most important things that I think construction companies could do to thrive is that if you're going to try to do business, let's say with American Airlines, Boeing, or one other company, the transparency is not there. You cannot see what they're going to be purchasing, how they're going to be purchasing it, or who they're going to be purchasing it with. With the federal government and the man and the congressional mandates of 23% going to small business, it is there. You could go right now onto Homeland Security, HUD, any agency, Department of State's website, and you could see how your taxpayer dollars are being spent, how they are going to, what they're going to be buying, what products and services they're going to be buying, whether they're going to be setting aside women-owned, service-disabled veteran, hub zone, or 8A. So the transparency is there. But don't make the mistake that I did, which was the shotgun approach. Try to basically narrow down your search. Also, build relationships and resources with those construction firms that are already successful in the government field. Because as I said, government contracting is not for everyone. You could begin to do business as a subcontractor and begin to grow your company in a sector that you're learning how to do business with this sector that is totally different than the corporate sector. So I would say 
subcontracting, teaming, you know, um, and if you are the company of one, don't think that you can't get it done. Um, I like to say the fake it till you make it. <laughs> many people would say, even when I was first starting up, Lord, is how many, how many employees are you? Well, will I tell someone that I'm an employee of one? I would begin in my mind to think, well, let's say I've interviewed about 12 people. If given the opportunity to get this business that I'm talking with this corporation, this is all mindset, I will hire those 12 people. So I would say, we're 12 employees. We're a group of 12. I would try to expand on also my teaming partners, resources, and past performances to be able to say, if we work together, I could piggyback on their past performance and make it mine. Now, if a government agency said, did you really perform this work or did it, did you do it in conjunction with another firm? I would say I did in conjunction oh, with another yes. firm. Yes. There's a, there's a lot of way to get started. And, right. and, but you're right. We can't assume that we're going to tap into the world with us. Right. Only we have to be like a team, like you've said. And I, I love the way you summarized it, you know, focus on, on federal contracting because you see there's a lot of opportunities there, especially now in, in the, after coronavirus, there's trillions of dollars going into construction, uh, infrastructure. And um, narrow your focus, narrow your clientele, understand who your client is, what, what can you offer the value proposition, right? And uh, you've said build relationships. Find a mentor, find a guide, someone that has already done done it well so that you can learn from them. And that's beautifully said, I have to say. Thank you for that. My last question has nothing to do with construction. But I, as I hear you talk and, the, you know, the, what I know about you, I really feel that when you started in the sales industry, the sales industry has prepared you to be where you are. And I, as I go on in business and I... You know, I'm an engineer, master in construction management, but sales and marketing is extremely important for the success of a business, right? Sales, marketing, innovation. How do you think sales prepare you to where you are? And what would you tell people that are very good in the technical skills, especially in the construction? You know, you see people that are an electrician and they say, I want to have my company, right? But they, they're good technicians but they don't necessarily understand the risk of the business side. Or you see someone like I started as a project manager in this, and I've been in the industry project ma managing projects. When you have a business, it's a different story. So what do you think, you know, what would you tell people that are good technicians and they start a business and sometimes they don't understand the sales, the marketing, they don't give it the importance. What would you say? What are the three advices? I'm gonna, the number of three, I love it. I think for a business owner, now let's take Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. We all know that he has great personality, right? <laughs> so he obviously wasn't the salesperson of Facebook. Or did he learn how to tell people that this was a necessity and this was something that was going to help them with communication, with connections, with building relationships? I think that as a business owner, you need to try to reevaluate the services or the products that you're going to sell and understand that what you are providing is the best service that anyone else is going to provide. When you have that mentality, like for example, no one else is going to be able to be a carpenter the way that I am going to be a carpenter because I care 
about your home and its carpentry or a trade position like an electrician or anything like that. A lot of times we're not going to buy from people that are the least expensive. We're going to buy from people that make us feel comfortable. And those are the people that have the greatest confidence. So I would say build confidence in what you're generating in your product or service. And then build on that to be able to sell. Everyone sells. Whether it be that you're courting your next girlfriend or boyfriend, and you're selling the fact that you are the best person for a life partner for her or him, everyone is always in the in the persuasive type of mentality. So I think that you need to understand the characteristics and build yourself as a good character, like I always said, with building value and also then being a leader in your industry. If all you have is a hammer and, and a drill, And you have the mentality that you're going to install that window the way no one else will. And you are going to provide the best service that nobody else is going to provide by doing XYZ. Then people will trust you. And all you need is just to perform good work for one word of mouth will go, will be your best advertiser. I feel that when you perform good work, Good work runs really fast. Same way in the garden. When you perform good work for one agency, they will say, what was the small business you used that did that for you? Right. And then next thing you know, you're growing your farm. I can't wait to do another episode with you, diving more into into a lot of details on how you navigate in the government contracting space. But I really have enjoyed time with you. I mean, we always enjoy time together, even if we go shopping. <laughs> and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to be with me and to, to share your knowledge with so many people. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And thank you for doing this. There are so many people out there that need great people like you guys that can give back. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Thriving in Construction, the podcast with Patricia Bonilla. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have any suggestions or any related topics you would like us to tackle in our future episodes, feel free to reach Patricia by sending her a message through the website anchor.fm slash thriving in construction or find her on LinkedIn. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week here in thriving in construction, the podcast.